Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, making out with amphibians. The Blood of Eden. A walk through the Rothko Chapel. And shut your mouth. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we are confronting a very, very interesting album brought to us by our dear bass player, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Hello, everybody. Now, this guy played in a band before, and Tony, what band was Peter Gabriel once a part of? He was in a band called Genesis. Okay, it's a religious band? Uh, Well, (laughs) funny you should mention that. Their first album that came out um, from uh, Genesis to Revelation was actually packaged in a way that when it went into record stores, uh, the record stores put it in the religious section. And (laughs) as a result, it sold 650 copies. (laughs) And it would be nice to be in the kitchens of those little old ladies when they put that record on. (laughs) It's actually, it's, it's, you know, it's not really, it doesn't really give you a taste of what's to come from Genesis um, later on. But it's very, it's a, it's um, sort of BGZ in a way, but not BGZ in you know the Saturday Night Fever, but more the kind of uh, Beatlesque disaster, the, the uh, early BGZ, yeah, like the Manhattan thing or whatever. I have a mind of my own in hiding far from the city of night and the factories of truth. I stand upon the mountain. And they were actually named, uh, their producer gave him that name because he thought the songs had kind of a theme to them. So they were, the, so he packaged them in a way and they just kept the name after that. But uh, first off, was, was it the producer that they were trying to, uh, the, at some point they consciously tried to sound like the early Bee Gees and was it to place the producer? Yeah, it might have been because they, what's interesting about Genesis was they did not fancy themselves as musicians early on. They all wanted to be songwriters. Um, But what they realized was that uh, no one was going to sing our song. So if we want to get our songs out there, we're going to have to do it. So they formed a band and started playing. They're actually, uh, uh, I think they were a conglomeration of two different bands that were, that were at this 
at this mm-hmm. public school called the Charterhouse Public School. Of course, public schools in, in the UK are, in fact, private schools, which is very confusing. But Well, uh, you know, they do a lot. They have they struggle with the language. They do. But, uh, yeah, all of them were in their in their late teens when they recorded that first album. Gabriel was 19. Maybe, maybe one of them was 20. But they were just barely that. And uh, so Gabriel was with them until 75. He was 25 when he left the band after their epic, uh, you know, masterpiece, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Thank you for saying the whole name, Tony. You're welcome. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> a, a, you know, a young, young guy and, and a pretty young band considering the complexity of the music they were putting out um, was was pretty impressive. Well, before, okay. we go, uh, before we go too much further, <laughs> let's talk about the album that we're actually talking about tonight, which is Peter Gabriel's Us. It was oh, yeah, we should, in, we should probably was, mention that, right? <laughs> Yeah, so this was uh, Peter Gabriel's, what, sixth, no, seventh album, no, sixth album. His sixth, his so, sixth studio album. His yeah. sixth solo studio album. Uh, it was released in September of uh, 1992. Mm-hmm. And before that, Peter Gabriel had kind of a, a, a long history. As we were talking about earlier, he was with the band Genesis, from its inception until 1975 when he left after one of their best albums. Um, the Definitely their Lamp, biggest. Their biggest album uh, with Gabriel. Um, the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And after that album, a person by the name of Phil Collins, who was their drummer, and I think how many people did they audition after uh, Peter Gabriel left and they finally oh, decided that that's yeah. like 400 or they something turned, like They that. turned around and went, wait a minute, that guy's actually sung on some of our songs <laughs> yeah. and he sounds enough like Peter Gabriel. Let's throw him in front of the mic. Singing it for the guys who were trying out to tell them how to sing yeah, it. I sing the song. And then finally, I, I think it was his girlfriend that said, why aren't you doing that? And then he <laughs> brought that up and there was some hesitation. But uh, I don't know if y'all know this or not, but Genesis went on to be very successful under Phil Collins. <laughs> and he even had some solo hits. Well, uh, just, yeah, the, the the funny thing about Phil Collins and the hesitation, I think, is because uh, most people who aren't aware of him behind the drum kit don't realize how great of a drummer that guy is. Yeah, this may be your only contribution to being alive. Think anyone's worried about you? Think anyone's worried about you? Uh, 
listen to the stuff he's played on outside of Genesis, and yeah. he, he was a session player. He was a sought-after session player. And I he's, think that was probably the hesitation there. They didn't want to lose this bang-up drummer. In fact, when they toured the first time without Gabriel, they Bill Bruford toured with them. So that's how they replaced they replaced Phil Collins with Bill Bruford. <laughs> yeah, who's not really a slouch on drums either. No, <laughs> no I, not I, at all. Um, every, everything I uh, read about this uh Early this this uh, split with Gabriel and Genesis brought up the fact that uh, Phil Collins was such a good drummer, and uh, Phil Collins was hesitant to become the lead singer because he thought that was just, uh, as he put it, shaking your booty out there and and uh, <laughs> not a real serious musician like a drummer. Uh, yeah, Tony, he he said that he felt like the drummer was the most important part of the band. <laughs> and uh, because if the drummer's bad, it doesn't matter how much, how good the rest of the band is. In your mind, Tony, what's the most unimportant uh, position in a band? Um, well, I know you want me to say bass player, but I'm a Rush, I'm a Rush fan, so I can't say that. Oh, that's right. Anyway. Um, well, and here's the other thing, too. If if you know anything about the history of Genesis and what Gabriel did in front of the microphone, why in the world would you want to follow that? I mean, that would talk about a tough act to follow. The guy would dress up in costumes. He would tell stories. And uh, and it's funny. Jam and I were talking about this before you before you got on, Doug, about the history of that. And, and it, it kind of transformed from the fact that they had three guys in the band uh, who all, I mean, they, the band loved the 12 string. And we, we talked about that, I think briefly when we talked about the Genesis album on one of our other podcasts, uh, when we talked about nursery crime, but they had three guys playing 12 strings, Tony Banks, Mike Rutherford, and Steve Hackett, Steve Hackett's the drummer. I mean, uh, the guitarist, Mike Rutherford's the bassist and Tony Banks is the keyboardist, but they all played the 12 strings on all these albums. Thirty-six strings would go out of go out of tune, and so there'd be long pauses between songs. And so he started telling stories, and that morphed into him doing these characters, and then morphed into him wearing costumes and becoming more theatrical. Um, plus, the band wasn't doing well commercially when he first started doing it, so it was also a way to give them a splash. When he wore the fox, the first costume he wore was he dressed like the fox on the cover of Foxtrot, which is, if you've seen that album cover, it's a a, a, a woman in a dress with a fox head, so he dressed like that. And the first time they he wore that in London, he was playing the... Um, I forget which which uh, maybe the rainbow and the very next day they were on the cover of Melody Maker and they're and they just tripled they started their taking off. Yeah, yeah, tripled their bookings. So, you know, see. But anyway, what, my point is, met, why would you, know you want to? Why would anybody want to follow that up? Yeah, I feel incapable of judging Peter Gabriel as a singer. I mean, as a songwriter, because he's such an amazing singer. Every word that comes out of his mouth sounds important uh-huh. and meaningful because of his voice and the things he can do with that voice. Nobody that I know goes from clean to distorted singing 
precisely the way he does at exactly the right time. And I don't know anyone who jumps an octave the way he does. Mm -hmm. And I think he knows that there's no one that jumps an octave the way he does because he does it so much. And another thing that I've noticed about his voice is he has an ability, I, I, I think because his voice is so rich and it has so many, if you just listen to it, it almost sounds like he's double tracking when he sings, but he's actually not. But he melds with the instrumentation so yeah, well. I was listening to true. that today, just going, he just sounds like his voice will all of a sudden become clear, but it's it's buried in the mix and it just starts coming out very it's almost like a a, a violin or a cello or something just kind of swelling into the to the music he, he just blends with instruments so well i think a lot of that has to do with who he admired as singers he is a he he you know he's not a he wasn't a rock a, an admirer of rock and roll singers his favorite as he puts it, his favorite singer or the person that really hit him across the head was Otis Redding. He saw Otis Redding live when he was 17. I've been loving you too long to stop Uh, wow. in, in England. And he said that the thing that struck him the most about that concert was the amount of warmth and uh, and generosity as a performer that Otis Redding had when he was singing. And, and I yeah. think Gabriel um, encompasses that. He's very soulful. His voice is very soulful. Um, there's only, there's another person I would kind of compare him to in a certain way in terms of being able to encompass that kind of soulfulness. And that's, uh, Steve Winwood. Yeah, mm -hmm. the other guy I would yeah. say he reminds me of. I mean, they're dissimilar, but the way well, they kind of the way they sing. You listen to Steve Winwood with the Spencer Davis band, yeah. and you have no confidence whatsoever that you're not listening to a, a an American blues band. I mean, yeah. he, he almost yeah. sounds like Ray Charles and and the Spencer does. Davis if you, albums. Um, if you listen to um, the song "Looking for Someone" off of um, off of uh, Trespass. Looking for someone I guess I'm doing that Trying to find a memory in a dark room Dirty man, you're looking like a Buddha I know you well Genesis album, the way that, the way that song opens up with Gabriel just singing the opening lines it, the the soulfulness of his vocals is it gives you goosebumps. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah, and that's the and you're right. The guy's voice is is remarkable, and it is difficult to think about him uh, as a songwriter because that voice is so um, just. I I give myself. I, I think if you want to figure out if he's a good songwriter or not, the first thing you should do is just read the lyrics, uh -huh. <laughs> because. 
once you hear him sing the lyrics, you're going to say, oh, these are the most incredible lyrics ever written mm-hmm. just because of his voice. Well, yeah. I've always been impressed by it. And even the early Genesis stuff where he doesn't know what he's doing yet, he still has a <laughs> he still has very, commanding presence. Well, very on good it. He does. And it's funny because he, you know, the two things, like I said earlier, he didn't want to be a performer. But what he did perform, he was a drummer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was That's a drummer and, into that. Yeah. And not and not he, a not a very good one, but he said well, he by would, his own words, he's yeah. not impressed with himself as a drummer. But he said he would be <laughs> he would just be happy to he would play with whoever would have him. I've never heard people talk about what a great voice he has, and it's always seemed strange to me. Let's give a quick history about uh Peter Gabriel in general. He was raised in a middle-class family. His mother was a musician. His dad was an electrical engineer. Peter Gabriel went to that preparatory school with the other guys who would eventually become Genesis. Genesis got their um, recording contract because one of the guys that was actually went to school with them actually became a musician, and he was looking to sign a band. They had a huge hit. Had a huge, yeah. one huge hit. They signed with with this guy. He was their manager, uh, and it was a bunch of school kids. And they were also very serious about their schooling, so some of them dropped out. And then they formed what eventually became uh, the nucleus of Genesis. Uh, Peter Gabriel started off as a drummer, but he also was a talented flute player, flautist, and. A flautist. So he was the lead vocalist and flautist for Genesis when he became the when Genesis became Genesis. He actually went. But obviously he was not that bad a flautist because he went on to play with uh, Cat Stevens. Chop me some broken wood. We'll start a fire. Hangs out with Genesis. They they produce some incredible albums. And he decides he wants to leave. He says he doesn't think he's as good a musician as he should be. He takes piano and vocal lessons. And he starts recording his solo album in 1976 with uh, none other than Bob Ezra. Bob Ezrin is known for working with Alice Cooper. He was Kiss. working at Kiss at the time. Yeah. No relation. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> he then went on to work with Lou Reed, um, and eventually he worked with uh, Pink Floyd. On the wall. On the wall. Well, and yeah, the final cut. So Which here's and so that <laughs> I disagree, but that's another conversation. <laughs> another conversation. <laughs> He then goes on to work with Robert Fripp, an album that really didn't do all that well. And then the next album he puts out, he works with Steve Lillywhite. Because, because, 
And Steve Lily White has worked with just about everybody. Um, Psychedelic Furs, he produced the first two Psychedelic Furs albums. He produced the Pogues. And he he eventually went on to work with U2. He's also a master engineer. So he recorded and mixed a lot of U2 albums, even after he wasn't the producer. With that, he had, Peter Gabriel had kind of his first this, um, hit in the United States with Games Without Frontiers. Hit number 48. Peter Gabriel uh, then per- does another album, um, security where he actually produces most of the album and it's mixed by a guy named Hugh Padnam who went on to work with the police and Fleetwood Mac and he was kind of famous for this drum sound uh, that they called gated reverb where it makes this kind of explosive sound whenever you hit the drums it makes this explosive sound and the the best example of that is in the air tonight by Phil Collins And uh, this is where Peter Gabriel decides that he really doesn't like cymbals on drums. He wants to not have cymbals on drums. And he starts getting into the idea of uh, just having a giant rhythm bed. And he starts getting into using drum machines and he starts getting into loops. And you can hear this on uh, like Shock the Monkey The, that was his first uh, really big hit in the United States. But it does kind of portend of the things to come. And so he takes a fairly long hiatus after this. I know you called that album Security, but I think you really you need to make, make note of what that album and the three other albums before it were actually called. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> So the way that, yeah, Peter Gabriel did not like calling his albums anything other than Peter Gabriel. And he the way that he explained it was, and every album had the exact same font on the, the cover. Uh, it was always just, a, but just a different cover. And a lot of them were done by the same guy who did Pink Floyd covers, Hypnosis. That he kind of looked at it as like a magazine, like a periodical. Like his albums would come out as a periodical. And so every album just had the same font, this, it, but with different album covers or different uh, pictures on the album cover. And so, yeah, security was what he went over to Geffen Records and Geffen said, well, the hell with this. We're not calling this Peter Gabriel. We're calling it Peter Gabriel's security. But Peter Gabriel always refers to it as his fourth album. It had Shock the Monkey uh, and uh, San Jacinto on it. 
And those were two pretty big hits for him. What is San Jacinto? But it's supposed to be about uh, Indians getting their land taken over. Whatever. Is- In Texas, it's the battle where we got our freedom. <laughs> Sam Houston beats Santa Ana, and that's why we're experts on Peter Gabriel. There's another reason why we're experts on Peter Gabriel. We'll get to that later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Peter Gabriel makes that album and then he uh and then he produces an album uh called so and this was the first collaboration between him and uh daniel lanois if you don't know who daniel lanois is i'm sure you've heard him he has produced a lot of bands um probably most famously u2 where he worked with brian eno who actually plays on some Peter Gabriel stuff, including um, the album we're talking about, Us. And then he also has worked with Bob Dylan. He's worked with um, Lou Harris. He he is a producer that has a definite sound to yeah. what he does. That's exactly you, right. You, you hear it right away. You hear Lenoir's albums, and they all have that same kind of ethereal quality yeah. to them. Uh, it's It's unmistakable. He was probably the most sought-after producer in the late 80s. I mean, he kind of took over the mantle from Steve Lillywhite. I think Steve Lillywhite was probably the most sought-after producer in the uh, early 80s into the mid-80s. And then I think that uh, Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno were probably the the most sought-after producers after that. So came out. It was a tremendous success. A and, monster. It was a monster. <laughs> and a lot had happened between So and us. Um, Peter Gabriel had gotten divorced. He was having some All distance. right. So this is going to tie us into the <laughs> Graceland album. Yeah. And this is the most interesting part of tonight's show, ladies and gentlemen. If you'll remember in Graceland, Paul Simon was coming to terms with losing Carrie Fisher who I don't know if y'all remember her or not, but she wore this particular outfit when that jab of the hut guy was in charge and it'd make it very hard to lose that girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, well, our friend Peter Gabriel has found himself in the same situation with the lovely Rosanna Arquette. Well, and I don't know if y'all know anything about that, but I'm scared to keep talking about her cause I'm going to be <laughs> married in less than a week and I could get in a lot of trouble. But I do but that's, you but that's, to go to the internet and find out what I'm not talking about. <clears throat> Doug, that's not but that's not who he was divorced from. He was Yeah, he was divorced, he was from, divorced from, from uh from his wife of sixteen years who actually was having an affair with the guy who produced his third album. Fourth album. <laughs> Fourth album. Okay. Well, how did he end up with Ro- Roseanne Arquette? Well, he got divorced from his wife, and he started dating Roseanne Arquette after that. But he broke right before he started okay, recording. So us, it's a happy story. Up. I thought it was a sad story. No, it's a it's a sad story because <laughs> he broke story. up with her right before us. But the divorce yeah, that what he was trying to cope with was the divorce of his wife of sixteen years, um, who yeah. essentially betrayed him. <laughs> yeah, you know, 
That's uh, that's horrible. I'm sorry she did that, but he did get <laughs> he did get her pretty good off. I mean, and he had gone on a amnesty tour of the world, you know, and they by amnesty out. you mean amnesty international amnesty international and he had be, kind of soaked up a lot of the uh the bad in the world yeah world music bad in the world and he was um kind of he was just taken by all of this but it was kind of odd because he he also made an out. He did the soundtrack for Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ, where he used a lot of the world music, world music people that he had come in contact with. He just kind of fell in love with that idea. He was going through all this. Um, this tribulation at the time. So it's kind of odd that while he was going through all this and, and so is kind of happy, but it has a lot of the same musicians on it. Um, he expanded the sound quite a bit on us. And, uh, there's a lot of people that were kind of the bedrock of. So that actually played on this album as well. So among them would be Manu Cachet. He was a fantastic drummer. He's played with just about uh, everybody. He played with Dire Straits. He's played with Sting. Um, you had Tony Levin, who is one of the greatest bass players ever. We mentioned him when we were talking about Paul Simon. Um, you had Shankar, who is a uh, one of the most unusual. He's got an incredible voice, but he also has a he plays a double necked violin i think one of them is tuned the way that a violin is tuned and the other neck is tuned to the way that a viola is tuned uh and he had Sinead o'connor singing on this album as well who he met at one of those amnesty international uh concerts and then another guy who makes an appearance on one of the songs is uh, John Paul Jones, who is the bass player and keyboardist for Led Zeppelin. Zeppelin for a long time. Yeah, and he was kind of an in-demand guy, too, around these times. He had played, he did all the string arrangements for uh, Automatic for the People by R.E.M. And so he was kind of making a comeback at this time I, after kind of isolation. I, I don't think you can, I don't think you can dismiss or, or uh, say enough about the last temptation of Christ and that influence on this album, because yeah. I know that people um, and people sitting uh, talking on this podcast have said as much that there's, uh, there's a, a sameness. Uh, that's not the term they use, but it kind of us seems more sophisticated like, term. The, us seems like a continuation of so, but I don't really see it as that. I mean, yes, it, it, the song, there are similar songs, similar sounds, but it, it's, us is Still. really is yeah. so with that last temptation of Christ uh, uh, yeah. music background and bedrock uh, infused into it. It's much more world music oriented. That's yeah. not to say there isn't world music oriented stuff on so, but this one definitely is. It's much more atmospheric, like the the soundtrack mm -hmm. to the Last Temptation of Christ is. Um, yeah. I, I don't think you have this album without Gabriel going through that uh, 
that process of recording that soundtrack. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you could almost intersperse songs from The Last Temptation of Christ into this album, and it might sound like a little bit more of a serious album. And I'm not saying that this album isn't serious, but it, it would almost take away from the theme of it. But the the rhythm beds, the the instrumentation um, would very much fit into uh, into the sound that you hear on on us. Well, and and the other thing is, you know, uh, Gabriel records albums in a sna- at a snail's pace, or I should say, releases albums at a snail's pace. I mean, this was six out uh, six years after so. Yeah, you know, you would think after a monster hit like that album was, and it was a monster hit. Yeah. Uh, you know, you couldn't get away get away from it that you would want to do something on the back of that, and yeah. instead he does a soundtrack album uh, it's it's funny you mentioned uh the paul simon album doug because they both came so and uh and that album came out in the same year graceland yeah graceland came out in the same yeah. year and and they are and 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 this album us that we're talking about <clears throat> is very much uh, of the same vein in that it's it's about a guy trying to use the music yeah. use music as a catharsis to kind of get through the pain he's going through the big distinction between the two is us sounds like a guy who's doing that whereas <laughs> whereas graceland doesn't outside of the lyrics graceland i think is a that, much more i think that beat album that's a good point but let's remember that um you know another big difference is paul simon was um not dating uh roseanne arquette after the divorce well, yeah, okay. And the other the other commonality between the two is the world music uh, yeah. uh, component. Although, as I said in the Graceland podcast, I find that to not be necessarily, a, and you guys disagree with me, I understand that the biggest strength of that album, I mean, it's why people listen to it, but there's a sameness to that album that that I don't, I know this album seems very much the same, but it, I think the world music element works better for me on this album than it does on Graceland. Well, I, think, I, think, I think a thing that I'm going to say is it gets to something very tribal the way that the drums come in the way just in some of the imagery that gets brought up into it it, and the the very essence of being a human being and being attracted to someone you you have a desire to be loved there is something primal about that and i think that that's one of the things with all this these rhythm beds and everything that he's uh, created makes that um i I agree with you i I think it's also that i just feel like he has a he's much more um fluid in how he mixes all these diverse varied sources together it doesn't it doesn't seem and i know graceland was huge so what do i know about it not being seeming jarring but it seems it seems yeah seems but another thing that it shares with uh graceland was there was just a ton. I think that they they gave uh, Daniel Lanois and I can't remember the other guys, the the engineer. They gave them like a hundred tapes to say, "Hey, put these together and make uh, songs for me to sing over." <laughs> yeah, I don't think it happened on every song. That's a, that's a lot like what they did on Graceland. Yeah, it's a huge. Yeah, and there, it was it was totally recorded digitally. And so, something that's something interesting about him, and <clears throat> you mentioned his father's background as an engineer who was 
into innovation and technology. Uh, Peter Gabriel uh, credits that with his own interest in all of the everything digital and yeah new. You, you know, <laughs> in his and videos and his music. The the funny thing about him as well is if you read interviews with him or see interviews with him, he's such he seems like such a straight laced kind of down to earth yeah, guy. He really, yeah. does. considering his public persona or at least his artist performance or persona is su- like such an oddball yeah. uh, persona, I mean, he, but he's right. not that way at all. I mean, he is soft spoken. <laughs> he is not in. Uh, anyway, self-aggrandizing. He's nope. uh, um, he doesn't seem like a rock and roller. No, no, he does not seem like a rock and roll star at all. And here's a guy who used to dress up with a have a pyramid hat on and pretend like well, he was mowing the lawn. On stage about what we used to do at that age. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody well, wants we, to do that. We weren't making the music he was making while he was pretending yeah. to mow the lawn, though. Yeah, we were making worse things. Um. So Let's get after the all, there is a record that we're going to look at. It starts <laughs> out with this thing called Come Talk to Me. Are you shaking like a leaf? Come on, come talk to me. Oh, please talk to me. Won't you please talk to me? We cannot. This is the first song of two that he duets with. Well, I don't know. It's not really a duet. I guess Sinead O'Connor sings sings background on it. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I let love... me give advice to anyone out there who's a singer. If he asks you to sing back up with him, run the other direction. <laughs> but she holds her own quite well. I think well, so, I think too. I'm not, her, I'm not the well. biggest fan of hers, but I think she does. I just I like her she's... politics. Yeah, but this song, <laughs> I love her voice. Absolutely I love, love the way voice. this song starts off with that drum yeah. beat and the bag, that yeah. bagpipe or whatever that is coming in. Yeah, you know, and it's so, that no, it again, is a that, bagpipe. that yeah. fusion of that kind of that West and East sound going on. Yeah, and, that's right, uh, ladies and gentlemen. There's no Mellotron. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we, we have finally found the anti Mellotron uh, um, artist. <laughs> this guy's got 40 people playing on every track. And that, and, yeah, well, that's if you don't have a Mellotron, that's what you that's do. That's what right? you have to do. <laughs> um, but man, the song just propels through that, you know, just that underlying drum beat on it. Um, and it's about, it's just, it, it's kind of based, I guess, not kind of, it's based on he was having some difficulties communicating with his 13 year old daughter when he's going through the divorce. But here's the, here's the great thing about Gabriel he's able to take that situation and write a song about it that's significantly more universal than just having a difficult yeah. a difficult time talking to his daughter this is all about communication in general with someone you love and the difficulties yeah. that come with that and how do you how do you break through those how difficulties do you break through that yeah yeah it's it's it, you know and i have two teenagers one being a teenage daughter who is not that much she's a little bit older but yeah it is a it's a universal <laughs> I well, didn't know I what the ever, hell it was. If I ever have trouble having a conversation uh, with a woman, I am going to keep this song in mind. <laughs> <laughs> and I, one last thing I'll say about this album before, or the song before we we split on. To me, it's the only, it's the best use of bagpipes in a uh, rock song ever. Uh, it's one of the few <laughs> uses of bagpipes. 
in a rock song ever. I think ACDC uh, is I the like only the other ACDC one. Version, or, I like <laughs> ACDC's use of bagpipes myself, but not as much as I like this, but I do like yeah. it. Yeah, it's when fantastic. Did, bag, did uh, Big Country ever actually have bagpipes? I don't think oh. they did. I think they just used um, guitars, that guitars like to make it sound. I'm yeah. going to do research on that. That's a Steve Lillywhite thing. I know. Uh, that's, that's a great band, too. Yeah, It is. Maybe someday we'll do Big Country. That's yeah, a fantastic <laughs> album. Crossing. Yep. All right. Love to be loved. This is this is something I that uh, he took from Cheap Trick, I think, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, this song does something that he does a couple of times. Uh, I mean, outside of just the uh, pretty incredible, uh, you know, again serious kind of back, you know, drum beat thing going through it. But uh, the thing I uh, thing he does really well, and I love when he does it, and it's and it's because his voice is so great. There'll be a moment in the song where all the instruments seem to fall yeah. away. And he just, just sings. bad in the back. Yeah. This old familiar craving, I've been here before, this way of behaving. Don't know who the hell I'm saving anymore. Let it pass, let it go, let it leave. From the deepest place I grieve. And it's just so powerful when he does it, and his voice always and his voice always sounds great. But at that moment, it's just the, it's like someone put in a spotlight on somebody on the stage, and yeah. it works so well. And he does that a couple of times on this album, and and this is the first time he does it. Um, you know, he's able to do that. He is so he able, on his yeah. uh, a lot of albums, and yeah. it would be effective if someone else were doing it. But when he does it. It's on a different level. Well, it's like when he does do it, he like I was we were talking about earlier, he is so he's almost buried in the mix like with all the rest of the the other instruments. And then when he does actually just use his voice as a solo instrument, it is Yeah, it's it's, it's spellbinding. It is. Know? That's a perfect word for it, Jam, is it's spellbinding. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing about this song is how, you know, when we talk about how soulful his singing is, it just sounds like someone. It, I mean, yeah, we know what it's about. This guy is talking about how this desire to be loved, but it just the pleading quality yeah. of his voice yeah. in the song is. Well, I think that the thing, given the background, like I think you, this is one of the albums where you do. It does help to know the background of this album because he is talking about, I mean, when you are getting broken up with or when you're having a breakup. You do not feel your self-esteem. You, you're you is have no self. Yeah, you, your self-esteem <laughs> is, is a goner. I mean, you just you just really don't have much. And I think that that's the when he does that sort of pleading when he does do that vocal solo thing in the in the middle of it, um, you do get that pleading sense that you know yeah. I'm losing such a vital part of me. Um. Yeah, you're just like yeah. I'm I'm right there with you. 
Um, Has this bee never noticed the way she wipes her hair from her forehead? Yeah. Brushes her hair from her forehead. Brushes, whatever. Anyway, I've never (laughs) been dumped, so I can't sing any of these songs. Um, Next up, we've got the, uh, The Blood of Eden. Now, as I understand that, this is not Eden, Texas. <laughs> this is the this is the second uh, second song with Sinead O'Connor on it, um, and I think one where she's another fine she's, job. She's featured a little bit more prominently on this song. This is a this was a single that didn't go anywhere. It was a third single, so we talk about that sometimes. Maybe people had all bought the album at that point, so that it's not saying a whole lot. Uh, I will say this about this song. Uh, this scene, I mean, if I were to pull a song off and say, uh, who's the producer on this? This is the one song that sounds just, I mean, more like this is the most Danielle and Wally Wally song yeah. on the album, I yeah. I feel. Um, I think you're it, right. And uh, it's, I have no idea. I think that there's a thing going on between Shankar's violin and uh, Gabriel's vocals that Gabriel always sounds double track to me, but there's just some way that he just blends in with that violin that's being played. Uh, that's amazing and plaintive. There is this natural tension between a man and a woman and you get into these moments of bliss with them, but there's always this idea of, you know, there's always this tension. Like, what are we, what, what are we getting into? You yeah, know, I, and, I think I think you're right, and I think that's why that he uses the image of Eden and the blood of Eden because I think yeah. it's this this idea that uh, you know the story, of course, the story of Adam and Eve, right? You're right. Uh, that's when man and woman were first; they were one mm-hmm. because they in the story, you know, Eve comes from from the body of Adam, but yeah. uh, but they're also one in the fact that this idea of original sin binds them in a way that's not yeah. great. So right. it's, I think you're right. There's that tension yeah. between uh, the, what it was like before the original sin and what it was like after the original sin. And they're both they're bound together in both places. But there's a distinction as to what that binding is. And the, and the songs about the tension from that. Uh, yeah. It's such a beautiful song, too. It is. And, and yeah. we've we've uh, already covered an album that discussed this issue before. I was wondering if either one of you remembered the Ramones album. No, it's uh, we're talking <laughs> World War Three blues when uh, Bob oh, suggested us to go play uh, Adam yeah. and Eve. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I mean, and she goes, "You crazy? You saw what happened last time they did that." <laughs> <laughs> and this song also does that same thing, where the instruments all sort of fall away at one moment in the song, yeah. and his voice comes up, and it's just again, it's very powerful. It just kind of hits very you powerful. right right between the eyes or the ears, yeah. I guess. As it and were. then here, here comes Steam. And okay. Steam reminds me of uh, places he's been before. Steam. 
but I didn't like it the first time, and I'm not that big of a fan of it the second time either. This song is essentially Sledgehammer Part Two. <laughs> and, I agree with and, you, and I don't. I, I didn't find Sledgehammer that interesting, even though it was a monster hit. This was a monster hit too, um, and I just I this is not the kind of Peter Peter Gabriel I like. This stuff. I'll agree with you. It's not my favorite. It's probably my least favorite song on the album, but I guess it was the biggest hit. Yeah, um, it's still interesting, but. Uh, I actually find Sledgehammer more interesting. Than I think Sledgehammer is very interesting, uh, but I don't feel like listening to it that much. When it comes yeah. on, I go, "That's interesting. That's cool the way he did that," but it doesn't reach reach out yeah. for me. Yeah, I, I think uh, I yeah, I think that I think Sledgehammer is all about that video. A well, lot so, of it's about that video, which yeah, is uh, this actually this album also got a Grammy for best video. Yeah, yeah. Which so, I can't tell you, I remember I, it. it. It it's it's surprising to me that he would go this route of of retreading that same ground, especially not, after six years. Yeah, but but and yeah. and not and and I mean to a point where it's obvious. It's just very strange because that's not his mo. So no. yeah, yeah. It's, it's not like he's so limited that he's reduced to having yeah. to do that. Yeah, I don't know. He wrote these songs over a it's period like he's of a, bass a very long time. <laughs> God. <laughs> Next up is Only Us. Okay, I like this song. I do too. I think it's the longest song on the album. Is that right? It's six minutes and thirty it, seconds. It, and it yeah. and again, uh, if you want if you want album. to point at a song that I think shows that kind of uh, progression from so through the last temptation of Christ to this, I think this is mm -hmm. a good example of that. Yeah, yeah. It um, it's almost trance like. I mean, it, it, it is. It, you start listening to it, and you're just kind of like. Uh, if you're listening to it in the car, it's not going to really take you anywhere. But if, if you're actually listening to it with headphones or in your room or something, it's going to it's going to move you. And his his vocals on this are yeah. amazing. Yeah. I don't know this what they did. This is to remind me of the Sam Cooke. Uh, <laughs> can't stop talking about the singing. <laughs> yeah. But just the is way there, he, the way he manipulates a, his voice on this yeah. is oh, We have so much control over the way you feel with his voice. Yeah, the uh, I'm wondering if you how much you attribute the production to the moods he's able to get out of this. Well, he's such a he's a master producer, I and mean, there's well, you can't, I think so. Uh, you can't and, get past that. And he knows how to go and hire people to do what he needs. Yeah, yeah. Say if uh, our audience will go look at the credits for this album, you will find out that we're a long way from. Uh, Four guys banging away on a Led Zeppelin <laughs> album. I mean, we're talking about there's yeah. probably, probably the people, people on this, on this yeah, album, at least 40, and they've probably never all been on the same continent at the same time. <laughs> well, he, I think he recorded this in three or four different places. Yeah. Um, I think he does that a lot. He's got studios set up in different places, and it's mainly uh, to try to get, uh, you know, a sense of just being someplace different. And having that infused in the music, um, 
Yeah, I I think what you said about listening to this on headphones and not being in the car, there's something about this album, with a few exceptions, Steam being one of them, that when you put it on, you just want to be you want to be with that album. You want it to yeah. sort of you want it to sort of uh, and this is a good segue for the next song. You want it to wash over you, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you want uh, it, you want it to transport you. This music yeah. is going to take you to a different place. It's not dance music. No, it's not. Uh, no, it's, it's not, not driving music. down the highway music. This music is. <laughs> it's not putting your arm around your, body. your sweetie. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're going to leave your body for a little while. And uh, when you come back, you're going to be a little surprised that you were gone. So hey. I guess I, what, what, well, what do you guys think it's about? I, to me, it's about um, you're distant from someone yet you're still connected to them, but you don't know what's going on with them. You know, like you're, you're, you've got some sort of question I, about what's, I, what's going on. I could see that that's similar to a song. the the song that closes his album out is kind yeah. of that same secret theme. world. Yeah. yeah exactly. It's that same theme. Yeah. I could mm-hmm. see that washing of the water. Okay, this is my favorite song on this album. It's my favorite song on this album, and it may be my favorite song Gee. by Peter Gabriel Oof. ever. That's a, that's than, a tough, more than she's so popular. <laughs> that's a that's a tough thing for me to say, but I don't begrudge you for saying it. This yeah. song is so gut wrenching. Yeah. So so his voice on it again talking about his voice is so unbelievable <laughs> yeah no one else could sing this song no, no there's way. not another person on the planet that yeah can give sing it this to song. tom waits he's not gonna be um and 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 it and it's I don't about think that second place James. <laughs> yeah and and uh give it to linda ronstadt she's not gonna and, she's not gonna be able and to the thing it. the thing about it is it's essentially in a it's a spiritual in a way on on a very surface level it's a spiritual but what it's really about is a guy kind of going through the cleansing process of this heartbreak, but you could feel every single moment of that in this song. Yeah. I, I, I will, I'm going to be honest here. It, it's hard for me. I'm going to steal something from jam. It's hard yeah. for me to listen to this song and not tear up every yeah. time I hear it. Yeah. And it, uh, we don't say tear up. Uh, say it, boo-hoo. We say boo-hoo. 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 Yeah. Thank you. Boo-hoo. This song. I just, I don't know if, if there's a better song. I, I can't think of a better song that, captures the debilitating experience that you go through when you're going through a a, a breakup i mean you're just um you're just hoping that that feeling goes away and you know it is actually going to go away at some point but you just want something to take it away as as fast as it can and and you know that you're not going to be able to have it go away you're just going to have to live through it. There, there are songs about breakups that that will capture the sadness of it, but I don't know if there's a song that captures the emotional intensity that you have to go through to get over that well, in this song. 
and the fact that he takes something that's, um, for lack of a better term, so cliche in in sort of yeah. spiritual songs as a yes. river and cleansing you that, and he's able to use that, and it doesn't feel cliched at all. Exactly, uh, yeah. is is amazing. amazing. Let me ask you all a question uh, about all. It sounds like a like the running theme is breakups and the sad ending of relationships or marriages. Um, Tony, what kind of person recommends this uh, right before someone's about to get married? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A good friend. (laughs) All right. So we were we were washing the washing of the water and now we're digging in the dirt. Song, this song is is just great. I mean, it's a very angry song. It's the angriest song on the album, I think. Um, and yeah. and it's and, and it's because he's that w- one of the things he was trying to get. Uh, I read about he was trying to get to touch, kind of touch with is this buried anger when he was going through therapy yeah. that he didn't realize was there, and it was there in spades. And so this song is about that, like digging through that dirt and. I've heard other people say it's about serial killers and stuff. I don't believe that nonsense. I think it's very personal about what he was, what he was going through. This was a pretty big hit. Um, You know, unlike steam, which is just a continuation of, so this is something uh, similar, or or I should say this way. It's something. um, uh, It's a funky song and it's, were you um, looking for funky, Tony? No, I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't think so. Familiar. I was saying it's a familiar <laughs> song in the sense that you know it's it sounds like something he may have done before, but it's unlike anything he's done before. It's and, unlike anything he's and, done before. And here's yeah. something. Here's something that's going to sound strange, but when this album came out in '92, and I, I've told you guys before, I wasn't the biggest fan of so. When this album came out in '92, and this song came out, this song sounded proggy to me in a way mm-hmm. that. Uh, nothing he'd done since the first song off his first album, More Bun the Burgermeister. Uh, yeah. This sounded very proggy to me, and I was like, holy cow, Gabriel's kind of gotten back into that. Now, it's funky in a way that progressive rock isn't, but there's something about it that just felt, I don't know, complex. Well, it, it's, it is complex. It's very, there, there's parts to it. And he, uh, you know, like, if you were actually to write out the charts, it would be a tough song to play. Uh, but it's, uh, it's yeah, like you were saying, it's my second favorite song on the album. If, had it not been, if you got rid of Washing of the Water, this would have been my favorite song. Well, um, and, and it's funny when Doug said, uh, this isn't dance music, uh, you could dance to this song, I think it'd be a funky dance, but you could do it, yeah, yeah. Well, play that funky music, <laughs> can't be more white <laughs> than prog rock. Um, 14 black paintings.
when Gabriel was touring the States, I don't know if it was for so, I'm assuming it was for so, the guitarist David Rhodes took him to the Rothko Chapel in Houston, which is a, a chapel in the round, and it has 14 Rothko paintings in it that are these blackish canvases. They're fantastic, yeah. If you get a chance, and, I highly recommend it. It's in the art district. And and that's what this song is a, is sort of based on. And I think it makes sense because those paintings are very stark and the song is very, very stark. It, it's very minimalist. It's almost like the musical yeah. version of a Rothko painting. Yeah, this is the one with John Paul Jones on it where he plays uh, just about everything that you can hear prominently is John Paul Jones. And those who don't know who John Paul Jones is, he's the bass player and keyboardist for, for Led Zeppelin. And he, he was kind of a sought after guy at this point. It, another trance-like song that is on this album. What is like four lines of lyrics on it? The whole thing, and it's how long is it? Something like five minutes. It, but, it is. It is. Uh, but yeah, it is trance-like. That's a perfect word as well. And and again, I think it just feels like that's what. Uh, it makes sense when you when you know what inspired it. That it is kind of the yeah. the musical mm-hmm. version of that. Yeah. yeah, and while we're on it, this one of the things that is in this, if you look at the um, sleeve of the uh, CDs, Peter Gabriel asked someone to paint pictures for each song. Um, And so most of the sleeve work on the CD is artwork. You know, he gets into the lyrics and then does give some, the musical credits for it. But uh, there's some interesting, some interesting pictures on it. I think it's uh, of note that you mentioned CD because when this in 92, when this album came out, LPs were not, were no longer a thing. They were no longer so, a thing. So the yeah. sequencing of this album is very much as it f- feels sequenced like a CD. It's got a, yeah. it's got a um, kind of an arc to it in a way that an album side might, but an album would not otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah. That reminds me of something I completely forgot that Peter Gabriel said about. So, and that was the sequencing on so uh was not in the order that he wanted i think he wanted to end with your eyes but the bass is so heavy he said on vinyl you have to put the heavy bass things early oh really the vinyl can't handle it at the center of the album and i found that fascinating i have no idea if that's true but he said that uh He's hmm. a big fan of the digital thing, and and he's he resequenced the album when he was able to do it digitally. Uh, yeah. Digitally, I can't say that. Somebody let's digitally. let's hire somebody to come in and say that, <laughs> and we'll put that on the record. Do yeah. we do we do we uh, speak just real quick before we get off of that particular song? Do we blame Gabriel for every girl of a certain age being in love with Lloyd Dobler and comparing every guy that they went out with with Lloyd Dobler? I must have been above that age. (laughs) Who the hell's Lloyd Dobler? He's in Say Anything. He's John Cusack in Say Anything. You know, the the, the iconic scene when he's holding up the jam box. Yeah, there's a Dobler. Yeah, there's a certain certain age of women that they they, they that that was their iconic male. And you could not. Or was he doing something like he was coming to rescue the girl or something? No, he was. Oh, she she broke up with him. Yeah. Sort of. And he was trying to get her back and he did that. Yeah. yeah. That's a uh, perfect example of what girls think they want. But when that actually happens, they have so much contempt for the guy. They'll never <laughs> date him. Anyway. 
Speaking of uh, guys tracking out with chicks, we've got um, Kiss That Frog next. Kiss That Frog. You will get your brains. Jan. I mean, it's a nice little song. I don't dislike it, but I don't know. I don't really know what to say about it. I think that it is. Well, first of all, it's another funky song. And the thing I like about it is uh, the distorted organ, Hammond organ sound on it. I don't know if that's a synthesizer or if it's an actual Hammond organ, but it's I really like that uh, little riff that goes through this song. And I, I, I like it's just an unusual song. It's just a and it was, I guess it was a hit. It, it was a hit. Point. And, and it, it was the one that won the, I think the, uh, Grammy for best Grammy. video or whatever music video. Yeah. Well, so they are, this they, is, this is about, uh, a boring guy trying to convince some girl that he's interesting. Yeah. And all she has to do is try to reach in and, ex- uh, and experience yeah. his inner self, which is, uh, also, another great way of uh, striking out with chicks that they uh, <laughs> jukebox over your head. So uh, anybody having trouble with the ladies probably should lay off this album and get something different. Listen to one of Led Zeppelin's first. Three <laughs> that'll that'll uh, <laughs> listen to Zeppelin, too. That'll that'll, yeah, that'll get you going. <laughs> yeah. And don't think too much. Um <laughs> Secret world, Tony. Secret world, we were colliding. All the places we were hiding, love. What was it we were thinking of? You're a secretive uh, guy. Am I? I, I just all the I, girls I, are right in about how mysterious you are. Yeah, right. Uh, so, yeah, this is I mentioned this earlier. I think this song's really about that kind of parallel uh, universes of being a couple and living your life as that, but also living your life independently and yeah. where where those cross over and how that impact, how they impact each other. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a great it's talking a great about, closer yeah, talking about. Oh, great close. So it's a great song about um, hiding your love. There's there's the lines about where did we keep hiding our love the whole time we were together. That that, that comes through. It's on. I think it's like in two and three, two or three of the the verses. Like where were we hiding our love at the time? And it, it's like everybody looks at you like everything's fine, and then. But the secret world is you're you're hiding your love from each other. Like, why are we hiding our love from each other? The answer to that is in a Lennon song, isn't it? What's that? Hide your love away. You got to hide your love away. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist. (laughs) Well, I mean, that that is kind of an interesting thing. Like, do you you have to show your pride so much that you can't show your love? Yeah. You know, it's a great way to close the album. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, like I said earlier about the sequencing, uh, 
you know, yeah, there's a song or two that I don't, there's one song I don't care for, one that I find I'm just kind of indifferent to, but overall the album just feels so great. And this, the way this one kind of leads you out of the concept is, is really nice. Yeah. So of all the uh, albums we've covered so far, is this your recommendation for someone that just got dumped? Would this be the best one? Uh, no, I wouldn't. If someone got dumped, I wouldn't want them to wallow in this stuff. This would make oh, you'd want to go jump, go go play in traffic. Um, you you want them to listen to Bobby Dylan sing and uh, <laughs> don't think twice and get on with it. You might go to jail if you listen to Redheaded Stranger. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they start dying with their smiles on their faces. Right. I got a trivia question for you guys. All right. All right. Uh, did you know or do you know what movie? Peter Gabriel was nominated for singing the uh, a song for uh, that was written by the song was written by Randy Newman and performed by Peter Gabriel. And he was nominated for an Oscar for the song and performed it on the Oscars. Wally. Nope. Gone that, with that, the wind. He did. He did get nominated for the Wally song, but no, this is even he wrote that one. Didn't even he? funnier. Citizen <laughs> yeah. King. Babe, pig in the city. Are you serious? A song called That'll Do. <laughs> well, that's not fair for people without kids. I thought that was yeah. interesting. Well, ladies and gentlemen, once again, thank you for joining us as we discussed Us by Peter Gabriel, who is not Phil Collins, but used to be in the same band. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Tony was unable to do his homework this, this week. So we're going to go to our uh, producer and bass player. Uh, Jonathan J.M. Rowe he has a recommendation for us this one comes straight from Austin, Texas that's right Doug Um, I'm going to recommend an album that came out um, I guess about nine maybe ten years ago by a local artist by the name of uh, Beaver Nelson so why Beaver is not a household name uh, is beyond me he has produced a great body of work. His oeuvre is pretty amazing. Uh, but the album I'm going to recommend is an album that came out uh, about nine or ten years ago. Uh, it's Macro Micro. It, 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 if, you, if you're a, a fan of The Who, I would highly recommend this album. Some standout songs on this are um, Natural Man Does Not Exist. Does not exist. Now he's a figment of imagination created by the breath of life. Killed my by personal the- favorite, which may be my personal favorite that of any song that Beaver's ever written is Your Subconscious Does the Dirty Work. Your Subconscious Does the Dirty Work. Your subconscious does the dirty work. Your subconscious does the dirty work for free. So you can sit back and say that wasn't me. If you do not know Beaver Nelson's music, I highly recommend looking him up. He is on um, Spotify. He's also on Amazon Music. Um, He's produced a lot of albums since the mid-90s. And I think he's working on a new album right now as we speak. But I would highly, if all those, I would recommend Macro Micro. And I, w- I, I think it's safe to say that all three of us would recommend him. 
to people listening yep. to the podcast. If you if you like clever, smart songwriting, uh, you'll be doing yourself a favor to and, take and, some time. And hooks. The guy can write a hook. The he guy can write, can write, a, write hook. a hook. That's true. And it's not That's, your typical three chord wonders either. No, so. he it's it's serious songwriting. And and the lyrics will give you something to think about every time you hear it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for tonight's show. Next week, we'll be looking at an album by the great Ray Charles, Modern Sounds and Country and Western Music. Look us up on Facebook, and we're also on Instagram, and we're on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. And as usual, you can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. Please leave us a note, leave us a review, tell us what album you would like for us to look at in an upcoming episode. And if you know anyone that likes music or the LP format, please let them know about this podcast. We'd love to get the word out. And for our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Final Tap for all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, go ahead and kiss that frog. Um, as, as everyone in our audience knows, we get a lot of mail each week about our podcast. Um, but something, something unusual happened last week. We got email from a staff member and it wasn't actually email. She's too young for email. It was a text and it came from our TikTok, uh, social media director and, she said, let me see if I can find it. Oh, my God. I can't believe y'all are doing Peter Gabriel instead of Phil Collins. How stupid are y'all? Seriously, if you're going to do Peter Gabriel, at least you could do that song about she's so popular. <laughs> so she's wondering why we're not doing that album. Um, well, that. That album also had a, a pretty a pretty influential song on it as well. <laughs> Pico. Yeah, I'm I'm not saying anything about the, our decision making. I just think it's important.